Uh, today we're going to continue where we've been studying in Daniel. So if you have a Bible with you, you could open it to the book of Daniel. And in the second chapter, if you don't have a Bible, there are loaner Bibles under the chair seats in front of you. And uh, Daniel chapter 2, it's a race to find it here, is uh, in these loaner Bibles, it's page uh, 616. So I want to start reading there. Pretty dramatic story. It starts off in verse 1. It says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. He's the king of Babylon. His mind was troubled and he couldn't sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. So, uh, obviously... This is a culture that put a lot of stock in dreams and, you know, visions and unusual sort of experiences. And, you know, Americans dismiss that, but most of the rest of the world uh, acknowledges that that's a, that's a real genuine phenomenon and that God actually speaks to people. And what's unusual about this is that God, is, as you're going to see, God's speaking to a pagan king. I mean, an, 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 so to speak, an unbeliever. Uh, and I want to, this is a very long Story. So I'm gonna. I'm just gonna summarize the next part. The king calls all these, uh, all of his counselors and wise men in, and he says, "I want you guys to tell me what my dream meant." And of course, they go, "Well, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation," because that's how it worked. And the king said, "Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not sure you. I'm not sure you're gonna give me the right interpretation. So, the only way I'm gonna know if you have the right interpretation is if you can tell me the dream." Pretty sharp guy, right? That's why he's king. So he uh, has a whole bunch of frustrated and freaked out counselors because they're going, that's not the way we were trained. We were trained to listen to the story and then, you know, explain the nuances of it for you. And he goes, no. I tell you, you guys are just, you're, you're stalling. You think that you can wear me down. I'm not going to change my mind. In fact, if you can't tell me my dream, I'm going to have all of you killed. I'm going to have you cut in pieces and your houses turn into garbage dumps. Which kings did that kind of thing. So the, the king has created this crisis. And so he orders his soldiers, I want you to find all the wise men. I'm tired of paying these guys. You know, we're going to thin the civil service out a little bit. And keep some more coin in the treasury. So these guys, uh, civil services got job security, except back then, right? So they... Uh, they're all running and hiding, and the soldiers are hunting for him. And so some sh- soldiers show up at Daniel's house, and, and they say, come on, we're going to execute you. And he goes, whoa, whoa, what did I do? You know, I know that the king, you know, has absolute power, but at least tell me what I'm getting executed for. And so they say, well, the king had a dream. The wise men can't explain it. The king's ticked off. He's going to kill all the wise men. I'm sorry, Daniel, you're considered one of the wise men. It's not your fault, but that's the way it is. This is Babylon. It's how it works. So... Uh, <laughs> He goes, whoa, 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 let me go to the king, and uh, I believe I can interpret the dream, and so he goes in, give me a chance to talk to him, so he goes in, the king says, can you do this, and he says, yes, I can, he said, I can't do it, but let, give me a chance to pray, and I believe God will show me what the dream is, and then I'll be able to give you the interpretation, because obviously you're pretty focused on this, and so the king says, okay, I'll give you some time, so Daniel goes home, finds his three uh, exiles, three other exiles, Jewish exiles, who are in the government 
service with him, and he tells him what's going on. He says, you need to fast and pray, spread the word, fast and pray, because if, if God doesn't show up and help us, you know, we're all done. We're cooked. We're, you know, at the end of our, we're retiring permanently. So they pray, and it says uh, that, verse 17, that uh, when he returned to his house, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then he prays and he thanks God. And this prayer is real significant. I want to read this because it kind of sets up the rest of it. Daniel praises the God of heaven, who's different than what the Babylonians worship. Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you, and you have made known to us the dream of the king. So he goes in and says, I can tell you your dream. And so he starts off, and he explains that... uh, the, the, the dream the king saw was the king saw this huge statue. I'm just going to summarize it. And the statue was unique, and it was, it was huge. It was just incredibly large. And so the king, you know, obviously was, was captured by this vision, and the head and shoulders of the, the statue were gold. And the chest and, and waist was silver, and then the, the hips and, and upper legs were bronze, and then the lower, the feet, the lower legs and feet and toes was iron, and then the, the toes were made of iron and, and clay. And so uh, this huge statue was just majestic and like breathtaking. Then the king, in his dream, saw a, a rock, and, and the dream, in the dream, the king said, the rock was, was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue at the feet, on its feet. And it crushed the feet, and then the whole statue just crumbled, and then just sort of became like dust, and then just blew away. And the little rock started growing and growing, and it became this huge mountain that filled the whole earth. And so the king was upset. He was thinking, what does this mean? Does this mean that, you know, there's a threat coming to my kingdom? He wanted to know and be prepared for it. And so Daniel says, that's what you saw. And the king goes, that's it. Now, what does that mean? And he says, well, I want to tell you something, O king. Uh, I can't interpret dreams, but the God who gave you this dream has given me the interpretation because he wants you to know something. He wants you to know he's speaking to you and to, you know, all of your people. That he's the God who is the king of kings and lord of lords. And And so he says, here's what the dream means. He said, the statue is four empires, and you're the head of gold. God has made you the ruler over your whole kingdom and dominion. So you haven't just done this on your own. God decreed that you be where you are, or or you wouldn't be there. And he said, and after you, there's going to be an inferior kingdom, just like Silver is inferior to gold that's going to arise. And then there's going to be another one. And then there's going to be a fourth one. And what we know historically was Daniel, uh, had this vision we can date pretty closely, was about 604 B.C. And four successive kingdoms 
emerged out of the Babylon, three successive out of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians, the Greeks, Babylonians, Greeks, Medo-Persians, and then the Roman Empire. And then, according to the timing of this, and, and later in the book, Daniel gives another prophecy. And he said that after the last king, or the king, king Cyrus issued a decree for the Jews to be sent back to their homeland, that it was going to be 483 years, and then the Messiah was going to come, who is the rock in this dream. Well, that's exactly, we know from historical records, when King Cyrus released this edict, because it's in uh, Persian records, which you know, are available for all to find and see, 483 years from that to the day, according to ancient calendars, is when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. And so the, God showed this pagan king this. And he said, so here's the, so, so the statue or all the, the great empires of the world, not just back then, but for all time in a sense. And the stone, and the, the, the word in Aramaic is, is even, and it just means like a rock or a stone. And in, in battles, you don't strike a death blow by hitting someone's feet. You might injure them, but you, you strike at some other vulnerable place. But this little stone strikes this huge, massive statue and crushes it to the point that it, it's, it just disintegrates and is blown away. And then this, this little stone changes into a mountain that fills the earth. And so Daniel says, listen, the statue is all human empires. The stone is the kingdom of God that he's going to set up. And the mountain is the effect that the kingdom is going to have as it fills the whole world. And so it's a pretty simple message. He's saying to the king who's sitting on his throne with all the wise men in front of him and all, you know, all these interested people there, curious about this, he says, it's God, O king, the God that you dissed when you invaded Israel and you took the articles from the temple and put them in the temple of your God, the God that you mocked and dissed that you thought was an inferior God because you had defeated his people, is letting you know he's not inferior and that he is the one who's given you the opportunity to sit on this throne. And so you better take notice of that. And that it's not you that, co- that governs and controls the course of history now or ever. It's him. And so he's saying it's God who decisively shapes history. Not, bi- not big empires, not big corporations, not big, powerful people. Uh, it's God, ultimately, who, is, who, dis, who shapes decisively history. And even more importantly, it is the gospel. The gospel is what is shaping history. And so this simple message that, that God's kingdom alone is going to decisively shape history now and forever... It's, it's a message that has to be heard again each generation. We have to hear it. We have to hear it because what those Jewish 
exiles were experiencing. Let me, let me back up a second. There's two audiences to this message. There's the Babylonians. There's Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. God is speaking to them. He cares about them. Surprise. <laughs> this cruel, violent, you know, imperialistic, heartless, feared people. God cares about them. And then there's the Jewish exiles, this conquered minority, who, who their, their existence is all about serving the Babylonians. You know, row well and live, slaves. That's, that's the, the idea. So God speaks to these two audiences, and, and then through them to us. And this simple message that God's the one that shapes and controls history, and, and the gospel in particular is what shapes and controls history, and the destiny of nations, and the destiny of, of communities, and countries and families and individuals, we know that on the individual level, right? Most of us know because the gospel encountered our lives, our lives are totally different. When you see the gospel encounter people's lives, like Amazing Grace, the song, I I often bring this up because it's the easiest one for people to, to get in touch with. The song Amazing Grace was written by a man named John Newton who used to be a slave trader. He used to buy and sell slaves from Africa and other places. And he was converted, and he became a pastor who became convinced the slave trade was evil, and he and his influence was what started the emancipation movement in England, the first emancipation movement in history outside of the gospel, He inspired the leaders of that to undo a slave trade that the whole whole economy of England was based on and the whole British Empire. He said, we have to be willing to lose everything to be right in God's eyes because we, we we have committed great evil for far too long. And it took them decades to win the legal recognition of of that uh, emancipation objective, but they did. And then they, they, uh, they freed all the slaves that they had under uh, English, almost all of them. I'm sure there were places where they didn't. And they paid reparations to them on top of that and you know, gave them land, a whole nine yards, all because of the gospel. And so he wrote that song because he had such a sense of how, what an utterly wretched person he had been and how Jesus... So we know that, that the gospel can shape individuals, but I think a lot of us think, big empire, you know, little rock, that's, that, that's a different game, right? I mean, little tiny person, big rock, you know, change person, but empire... It, it can. It, it, it has throughout history. So to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar and to his crowd and people who are in power, here's, here's part of the message. God was exposing Nebuchadnezzar's sinful human pride in this subversive way. Daniel didn't walk into his room and say, you're a proud man and God's going to humble you, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> because that would have probably gotten him killed if God hadn't protected him. So what God does is he, he is working on Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He gives him this dream that troubles him. And 
The way it humbled his pride, I mean, there's, there's, I'm just going to give you a few, but just the way that this was all set up, humbled Nebuchadnezzar's pride and got to his heart in a way maybe no other approach could have. Nebuchadnezzar had all these astrologers and wise men trained. They were his hand-picked counselors. They were useless. Nebuchadnezzar had to depend on a Hebrew exile to explain to him. Someone that, that his great power had conquered was the one that had the answer for what troubled him. And which, by the way, a little lesson to all of us is we have to hear from God or we can't sort things out. Each of us. Not just on these big, massive scales. We need to hear from God day in and day out for our lives to work the way they're supposed to. And what pride does is it tells you like Nebuchadnezzar, I'm smart, and if I'm smart enough for everything, I hire smart people who I train to work for me. And we're all smart, and we can figure anything out. We can do anything. That kind of thinking is at the bottom of pride. And here's the scary thing about pride. When we're proud, we don't recognize how proud we are. And just tattooed on the hearts of the the Jewish people was pride goes before a fall. It is mentioned in the Old Testament over and over and over. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is sent by the God that he mocked, which I mentioned earlier. He's realizing God... You know, the God I, I don't worship, that I, maybe I should be worshiping, is the one who gave me the power to sit on this throne and do everything I'm doing and gives me all these privileges. And he's the one that gave me the dream to speak to me and that I didn't understand it, so he sent someone to interpret it for me who I was going to kill. I mean, what, what an idiot I am. I could have, like, wrecked my life if I'd just gone along the way I was going if God hadn't intervened. And see, that's what God does. And, and God doesn't tend to intervene like taking a two-by-four and going, boom! He does it in this amazingly subversive way in our lives. And that's why Jesus said in his day when he sent his, his workers out to, to tell the good news, he said, he, he, they came back with this amazing report of how people responded. And he said this, he prayed, he said, God, I thank you that you hide the truth from people who think they're really smart and you reveal it to people who are humble. Now, being smart doesn't mean you can't be humble. You understand? You can be smart, but be proud and then you're in trouble. But if you're smart and you're humble, your life is going to end up moving in the right direction. But the scary thing about pride is, is we don't know how proud we are. But we can recognize it if we just realize in a simple way, if you look in the mirror and you, and you find yourself thinking, I can do it without help. I can do it by myself. I can do it. That is pride. I, 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 I. When there's a lot of I's in there, then you, you've got a problem. So Nathaniel, I mean uh, Nathaniel, Nebuchadnezzar is revealed and his empire is revealed no matter how strong 
this massive statue, it appears to be, it's going to be destroyed and replaced by a little rock, a little Eben. The foolish things of the world are the things that will conquer and expose and humiliate the wise things. And I, I know many of you, and, and in your honest moments, you feel like that. You feel like, I am that little rock. What do I have to offer? What difference can I make? I'm surrounded by all these sharp people with power and, and everything I don't have. And what difference can I make in the world? Does that sound like how the, Bab- the, the Babylonians viewed the, the Jewish exiles and lots of other people? And so the message then to the, to the Jewish exiles, to Daniel and the Jewish exiles and us is, because their, their world was turned upside down. Their world was antagonistic and scary and oppressive. And they didn't know, do I have any hope? Do I have any purpose in this world? Is there any reason for me to be here that makes a difference? And if I, I think these young men, at times they felt like, yeah, there is hope and there is a reason and there is a purpose for my life. And then other times the circumstances around them just squashed them and they just felt like, I'm so out of my depth and I'm, my life is just so sort of not worth anything. Then God does these things. And see, God's the one who's, if, if we'll learn to pay attention to him, he's the one who's constantly trying to show us that there's hope and that we have a purpose in the world and that we're meant to be significant, no matter how small of a little even that we are. Because that's how we are. We look in the mirror and we see little rock. Can't make much of a difference. Because there's, there's some of you this week, you have felt like a little stone thrown against a mountain and you bounced off of it, or, or a, a, the giant statue. And you just, bing! There's not even a mark on the statue. But Jesus is that rock. And we, in him, are living stones. And we are meant, like God's message to the Jewish exiles was really simple. He said to them, you're supposed to look at these circumstances and realize that because the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, the God you worship and whom you serve, he's in charge. And you're his servants in that context. And none of them left Babylon. They lit, everyone who heard this story in its first telling all lived and died in Babylon. And so they read this, they heard this story as it was told again and again and again in an oral culture. And they interpreted it in light of their circumstances. And then when they went back home and they were returned to their promised land, they still lived as a people who had been conquered. They, they, they just lived from, mouth, you know, from sort of hand to mouth, as they say. And th- this book was very relevant. It was one of the most influential books in the time between this time and when Christ came to the Jewish people. Because it showed them, no matter what their circumstances were, 
and how dark it might be, that they could be confident that God was the one that was in charge of everything. And if they would just trust him and his word and obey him and tell other people about it, they would also be part of shaping history. Because Daniel shaped history and his friends shaped history at this moment. The little rock. See, they, they were already experiencing the fulfillment of what Jesus was going to do, you know, 483 years later. Or more than that, uh, uh, close to 490 years later, because this was, this was 70 years before that. So, we're meant to participate in that. And that may sound sort of academic on a certain level, but you can make a difference if you hold on to God's word in your own life. But one of the most amazing opportunities God gives you is like this story. God was reaching out to a proud pagan king who was just self-confident as he could be and was trying to draw him to embrace this kingdom of the little rock. When he was aligned with being a part of the big statue. Because the big statue was calling the shots, he thought. And so God shows him, you're not calling the shots. I call the shots. But I want you to be in the position you're in. And sometimes we think, oh, God, you know, God's people are all supposed to be doormats. We're all supposed to be just nothings. With no influence, no gifts, no talents, no abilities, no, you know, no places of, of power, in, in, so to speak. No, it's not true. It's clear. Daniel, after this, was elevated. And as you watch this story, he keeps getting promoted because he's faithful. Because he's not out just for his own interests. He's serving God, and he's serving the good of the people that he's appointed to, to govern. He's not one of those sort of politicians like uh, uh, the American political system is full of. It's just about me getting mine. As long as I can get what I want. That's not what Daniel was about. But in that moment, he was just, they were just, a, they were young men. Very young men. Teenagers who did this. Imagine that. I mean, just imagine it. They were teenagers when this happened. And you may think, well, gosh, how could I have that kind of influence? Well, we are supposed to be, uh, as, as the people of God in the world, you're, we all function, like I, I would say in this situation here, Daniel functioned as a trail guide to Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't a salesman selling the kingdom. He was showing Nebuchadnezzar, what God was doing in that moment in his life. God's real. He's speaking to you. Here's how you respond to him. That's what we do. That's our function. We don't have to have the end figured out. We don't have to have days ahead figured out. The moment we are just spiritual life guides for people to see what God's doing in their world. And we, we can look at this story and realize God is speaking to all the people around me that look very unlikely to be interested in spiritual things. Sometimes the, most people, the people who look the most uninterested in spiritual things are the people that God's speaking to 
the most clearly. But you've got to get close enough to them. You have to risk things to get yourself in a position to get to know them and be their friends and love them and serve them enough for them to share that with you. And not only can you influence individual people, but we can shape the history of and the, the destiny of communities, states, countries, regions, continents. I'm, I'm going to close just with an example. There's, I, I'm, I'm finishing a book right now called A Wind in the House of Islam. And uh, the book is uh, the, the printed report of a project, a research project, from uh, some people who were, who were curious about uh, how the gospel was, uh, was impacting Muslims. Because they started hearing stories about Muslims coming to Christ and and that some of them were hard to pin down. And so these two researchers, with the help of a, a private foundation, uh, did this huge research project. And they interviewed uh, personally uh, over a thousand Muslim converts to, to Christ from uh, Indonesia all the way over to the west coast of Africa. And through India, through uh, Southern, southeastern Asia, the Middle East, uh, down the east coast of Africa, the north coast of Africa, the west coast of Africa, and then up into southern Europe. And what, what they found is they, they researched in history, and this is to the, the tell you, one of the things that, that people are freaked out about in America today is uh, Islam, right? I mean, is there anybody in here who hasn't had a conversation about this issue in some way, shape, or form in the last couple of months? Raise your hand if you haven't. Is anybody that doesn't know about it? And it's a very controversial issue. And unfortunately in the church, we're, we're freaked out. But if we, were, if we were listening to all this stuff with the heart of Daniel, we would understand that we shouldn't be freaked out. Not in the way that we are. Because Islam, since, since Muhammad died in uh, early 600 B, uh, AD, for 13 centuries, Islam has, has when it started near Mecca, it's spread east and west to the point now where there's 1.6 billion Muslims. Now, I'm using the word Muslim loosely, and I won't get into explaining that, but as I, as I read this, there's... There's, uh, uh, just like in Christianity, there's lots of versions of Christianity, and there's lots of versions of Islam. But there's, it's the fastest growing religion in the world. Almost 2% a year, which is a lot, across the world. And a lot of it's through, through uh, babies being born, to be honest with you, because Muslim families are really large, uh, larger than most Western families. But... For 1,300 years, there's only been two significant movements of Muslims from Islam to Christ for 1,300 years. And both those movements, and they defined in this book, The House, uh, Wind in the House of Islam, that a movement is where at least 1,000 Muslims come to Christ and at least 100 churches are formed within a 10 to 20 year period. So it's a, pretty, it's a pretty significant high bar 
There's always been Muslims here and there coming to Christ. You know, no one disputes that. But people are very afraid of Islam because it just seems so scary and violent and, and uh, threatening. And it's growing. And, there's, you know, and, and, and they're coming here. Ah! And I don't want to say that there's no danger in that. Because there is some danger. I mean, you hear people who are Muslims shooting people in the United States. It's happening. So I'm not mocking that. But what? The, Islam is as much a part of that statue as those empires were. And here's what's happening. Those two movements to Christianity happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Those are the first two movements in 13 centuries. And during that time, millions of people went from the Christian column to the Muslim column as, as Islam spread. And most of them were forcibly converted, right? And they're part of that loose-knit thing called Islam. Now, in, at the end of the 20th, excuse me, in the 20th century, there were, how, how did I count? There were uh, 11 new Muslim movements to Christ. And most of them started in the 80s and 90s. But since the year 2000, now, conservatively, these researchers have found 69 movements to Christ among Muslims in every one of what they call the nine theaters of Islam. Because Islam has very distinct uh, you know, ethno-geographical expressions. And in Africa, there's three different theaters of Islam that are very different because the languages and the, the cultures, etc. In all of these across the sort of the equatorial part of the world where Islam has spread and is, is you know, most widely practiced, there are these movements to Christ that are being led by ex-Muslims. And I've mentioned this for a while. I'm going to read a story to you, another simple little story. And it's a, it's a picture of this. It's a perfect picture of the stone hitting the statue. Uh, in, there's, a, there's a church called the Gospel Church for the World uh, that had about 250 people in it, you know, a little bigger than our church. And, and, and it was in a city of 7 million people. And I, I'm pretty sure, they don't say where it is, but I'm pretty sure from some indicators, it, it was in uh, either North Africa or Northern India, which are both real Muslim strongholds. And there, were, there was a pastor and his wife. The pastor is named Jirani, and his wife is named uh, Hadi. And so they were just doing their thing in their city, and uh, a Muslim dressed man came to their church and uh, after a service and, and introduced himself uh, to, the, to the pastor and his name was Azim. And Azim said, uh, could you tell me again what the name of your church is? And he said, it's the, he said, it's the gospel church for the world. And Azim said, that's why I've come to talk to you. And he said, Oh, he said, are, are you into missions? <laughs> this Muslim, it's kind of funny. It's funnier in the book. I'm sorry. I'll go down. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, how long have you been meeting as a church? And he said, four years. Why are you curious? And he said, 
so how, long, how far have you gone with the gospel? And he said, well, we just reach it here in our city. And so he said, uh, that's all. And the man, the Muslim man said to him, it is not good for a church for four years to have the gospel and not follow your calling. You have started, you should have started before now. And the pastor stepped back and, and, and started kind of getting bothered, like, what? Yeah, who do you think you are? And he was getting like, get a little attitude here. And he says, your name, you say your name is the gospel church for the world. Why do you have that name if you haven't taken the gospel to the world yet? And before Jirani could digest this challenge, he said, if you will let me, I will take you to my people, the Muslims of the Yapa Plains. And he went, what? What? And he says, no church in the city goes to the Muslims. That's dangerous. You know, people could lose their lives and no mission agency will even send us there. And he says, so, you won't go. And he said, it's not safe to go. And he said, so then you must change the name of your church. <laughs> Isn't this a Muslim telling him this, right? No, he's not a Christian. So, he says, so are you going to name it, change the name of your church? And he says, No. And he says, so then you're going to let me take you to my people. And he said, well, let me and my wife and our elders pray about this. And so they prayed for a week. And, uh, and he says, how long will you need to pray? Another four years? <laughs> <laughs> so they prayed and they felt like this is God. So here's the, he says, a month later in a few hundred kilometers away, Jirani and Hadi climbed out of a public bus to greet a group of about 50 Yapa Muslims who had been waiting under the shade of this great tree. So imagine, they go up this hill, and there's this big tree. Neither in the group seemed exactly clear about what was going to happen. As Jirani walked toward the group, he asked Azim what he should do. Azim had a simple answer. Don't you want to tell them something about your Jesus? So Jirani began to speak, and he noticed that all the men held spears and appeared to be quite unmoved by the words he was choosing so very carefully. As he hesitated... Hadi, his wife, seized upon the pause and suddenly began to pray out loud, not a soothing, gentle prayer of blessing, but a loud and bold one. Hadi was rebuking the devil. She was asking Jesus to bind the power of every evil spirit that tormented these people and rebuking in Jesus' name all the dark powers in the region. Shocked, Jirani begged Hadi with eyes wide open, shaking his head and saying, No, 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 stop, 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 don't do that, don't do that. This prayer is going to get us killed. But when Hadi felt the need for bold prayer, bold prayer was coming out. And this was one of those times. It's certainly not an advisable strategy for engaging unreached Muslim people to begin by antagonizing them. But from that moment, it was game on in the battle for the souls of the Yapa people. Jirani's pleas for Hadi to stop grew more desperate until first one person, then another. Then clusters of people began to weep and drop to their knees. At that moment, Jirani wisely switched his message to Hadi. Keep going, keep going, don't stop. <laughs> he had reached a certain conclusion that they were now in the middle of God's blessing. And then he goes on. Five years later, of the 50 people under that tree, several have become remarkable leaders, Christian leaders. To this day, they like to laugh and tell a story about Jirani and Hadi's unusual meeting with him on that first day. And Jirani's church is living up to its name now and has a heritage that cannot be measured. The prayer movement that started in Jirani and Hadi's home produced hundreds of intercessors and well as many 
uh, people passionately praying and fasting for provision, protection, and God's intervention among Muslims. And those prayers are being answered in the witness of seven generations of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. Now, among the Joppa people, there are more than 500 congregations populated by 26,000 former Muslims who had given their lives to Christ. And the regular baptisms continue in varied places when hundreds of joyful worshipers arrive for their appointment with Jesus, singing while smiling, while the smiling mother of the movement, Hadi, the prayer lady of Yapa, stands under her tree measuring and treasuring the moments. Now, there are movements among Muslims that they have to be very careful about describing where they are because they're persecuted. There are, there are Muslim movements, like one movement, that has over 2 million, in the last 10 years, they've, they've seen over 2 million baptized converts. And baptism to Muslims is a big, 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 big deal. There's a lot of people who have got to say they aren't ready to get baptized because they know when you get baptized and you're a Muslim, it means you've stepped forward You've taken a step you're never going back from. And you're opening yourself up to all kinds of trouble. You're cutting ties. You're doing, it's a very radical thing. And there are over 100,000 churches in that movement. And this has happened in the last 10 years. And it's happened in the face of, I mean, I, I, you read these, you, I've, I've read a number of books like this now about this. They're facing the most intense persecution you can imagine. They're getting killed and tortured and they're, Houses are being burned down, and they're, they're losing jobs, and they're being you know, mistreated in every way possible, but they, they're, they experience it joyfully, and they just keep proclaiming the gospel. The statue of Islam that everyone is scared about, the stone is hitting it. This, in the last 15 years, there is a wind of God that's moving through the Muslim world that is changing it. It's changing it. There, there, there are national political leaders that are being converted now. This is from the eastern rim of the Pacific Ocean all the way over to the western coast of Africa. And we here are supposed to be heartened by that and realize when we look around us and feel like, do I have a purpose? You do, just like Daniel did. Just like those, those people that first took the gospel of these Muslims and these Muslims that are becoming believers they look at their world and they feel just as overwhelmed as you do but they take this message of Daniel 2 away and they take it to heart and they say God's the one that's in charge of history. God is at work changing the world the empires around us are being crushed by the gospel and it's this, it's, it's a war of love and mercy, and justice, and, and service, and humility. And God takes the weakest things and uses them. We don't have to be ashamed of being weak. That is the qualification for being used by God. And so we're going to take communion and, and close the service. And uh, Where's Adam? Adam, wherever you are, come up. Uh, if the folks who are going to give the elements up, you guys should just come up now and grab them. This is a picture of the rock striking the statue. The oppressive statues, the, the oppressive statue, oppressive, not impressive, the oppressive statue, the, 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 uh, the picture of evil and injustice and sin and darkness that controls the world. The rock, not 
cut out with human hands, Jesus, the rock, the cornerstone, 